I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, as we seek to answer quite a basic question, how can I know what is sinful? How can I know what is wrong? How can I know what is good? Um, last Sunday, we began our time in, or sorry, two Sundays ago, we began our time in the Heidelberg Catechism with Lord's Day 1. And maybe for those who are a little bit newer to the Catechism, it would be helpful for you to know how it's structured. There are 52 Lord's Days in the Heidelberg Catechism, just as there are in a typical year, 52 Lord's Days on the calendar. And so the intention there is that um, in the tradition of the Christian Reformed Church, there would be a Catechism sermon on each Sunday evening that we would study the full breadth of topics in the Word of God, that we would learn about our misery and sin, that we would learn about the deliverance we received through Christ, and that we would learn also about how to thank God for such deliverance and live a Christian life, live a holy life that's pleasing to Him, which is the largest section of the Heidelberg Catechism. And so um, part of the purpose of the Catechism is that um, it, it helps to correct pastors from getting on hobby horse topics and never covering some of the very basic truths of the scriptures. Um, this would be a tendency. I have my kind of leanings that I move towards certain passages and scriptures, and, and that's how God designed me and Pastor Zach and every pastor in some respect. And the catechism helps to correct that, to say here are the, the basics that we must cover, um, things like the Apostles' Creed, every line of it, um, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and each of those can be found um, in great detail in the teaching of the Catechism. And so in case you're wondering, um, this image on the slides behind me, or maybe for those watching on the live stream, is an image of the city of Heidelberg. And the church that you see to the right of the image, um, towering over the rest of the city, at least the lower part of the city, below the palace above there, is the Church of the Holy Spirit, where the authors of the Catechism ministered and worshipped the main author of the Catechism, Zacharias Ursinus. And so he was a minister in Heidelberg in the 1500s. The Catechism was completed in the year 1563. It was published that year and went through a couple edits and, and changes over the next decade or so, but is largely unchanged from the text that Zacharias Ursinus and Caspar Alevianus and some of the other professors in the Heidelberg um, University and pastors in the town developed there in the 1560s. And so when we began last week, we read the first two questions and answers of the Catechism. Q&A 1 is a beloved passage in the Christian Reformed Church, reminds us of the only comfort that we have in life and in death, that is that we belong body and soul in life and in death to a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We even sang a song last Sunday night that's based on those very words. Um, what is my hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. And so that song, which is a modern song, based on Q&A 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism. But let's review very quickly before we get into our text today, Q&A 2, which will prepare us to hear God's word in Romans 3 and the teaching of Lord's Day 2 of the Catechism. So question and answer 2, I'll just read this aloud and um, we'll respond responsively out loud um, later uh, to the Lord's Day 2. But just for your benefit here, the words are on the screen. What must you know to live and die 
in the joy of this comfort, of Christian comfort. It is that we must know three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. That's the section we're in today. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. That is in Christ, the middle of the catechism. And then third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. So that's essentially the table of contents of the Heidelberg Catechism, which means that we're at the beginning, the section on sin and misery. And like a general going into battle, we need to know our enemy. We need to know how great our sin and misery are without Christ so that we would grow in thankfulness to Christ for delivering us from such sin and misery. And so having said all this, let's First, read from the perfect authoritative word of God, Romans chapter 3, um, starting at verse 9, and then we'll get to Lord's Day 2 of the Catechism. Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? So he's contrasting here uh, the Jewish people and the Gentile people, and, and this would have been a question that his readers would have asked. Do Jewish people kind of get a pass because they are members of God's covenant um, by birth and circumcision? The answer, no, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We continue learning from the Heidelberg Catechism, questions three through five, the words of which will be on the screen, and let's read them responsively. Brothers and sisters, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Amen. It is true. In 2004, a book full of essays on everyday life was published. It became a popular book and sold millions of copies. And the book's success, I think, was partially due to its catchy title. All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. All I really need to know I learned in kindergarten. And I haven't read the book, but the appeal of the title is understandable, and it's, it's kind of undeniable. I can see why somebody 
would want to read a book with kind of a provocative title, but it's also thought-provoking. The idea, I would assume, based on the title, is that once you get the basics of life figured out, basically the things you learn in kindergarten, how to share, how to sit in class, the basics of, of letters and math and so forth, then the rest of your life is learning how to apply those principles to various situations, to go deeper into those, those principles and those lessons that you've learned. But, but the idea of the book is that this, the foundation is laid in kindergarten, and that's really what you build on for the rest of your life. So I don't think the book is anti-education. I don't think it's suggesting that children should stop going to school after kindergarten. But the claim is that those basic lessons you learn set a trajectory for the rest of your life. And it is the same way with theology. When we have the basic questions answered by Scripture, we will be far better equipped to handle all of the complicated scenarios of our lives. In the same way that a child needs to learn letters and basic reading and basic math facts, and then the rest of life is building on those concepts and principles such is the case for the Christian today as we learn the basics of how can you know what is sinful? How can you know how you're delivered from sin? And how should we thank God for such deliverance? When we get the answers to the basic answers to those basic questions correct, it sets the right trajectory for our whole lives as believers. So, the teaching that we will consider from the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 and from Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism, points us to some of those basic Christian doctrines. For many, it could seem a little bit elementary this evening, but yet at the same time, we need to return to those first principles so that we can examine if our life is built on the firm foundation of the teaching of God's Word, or if perhaps we've gone off track a little bit in our answer to such a simple question. How can I know what is sinful? How can I tell right from wrong? It sounds like something a kindergarten teacher would ask, doesn't it? But people give a wide variety of answers to that very basic question in our culture, in our culture which is so full of confusion as we recognized this morning. We thought about the confusion about the topic of male and female and marriage. And there's confusion in answering this question as well. How can I know what is sinful? What are some of the most popular answers that our culture gives? First, we'll examine some, um, some erroneous answers, some wrong answers, before we get to the right answer from Romans 3 and Lord's Day 2. The first possibility is that we would feel what is wrong. We would feel good when something when we do something right, we would feel bad when we do something wrong. And first, before we maybe criticize, overly criticize this, we can recognize that sometimes our feelings are helpful in recognizing what is sinful. If you witness sexual harassment in your workplace, it makes you feel rotten. If you witness a parent being abusive of their child at the grocery store, it makes you feel really bad for that child's sake. And it's good to feel bad about sin, of witnessing sin. If you know that you, during a course of a conversation, have lied about your accomplishments, have kind of inflated your ego in that conversation, you might walk away from that conversation feeling pretty bad about yourself. And that's a good thing that you would feel bad, that your conscience 
would be sort of pricked as the Holy Spirit has pointed out something that you have done that's bad. And so certainly we can say that your conscience is connected to your feelings. We can see that certainly in the Psalms where um, when the psalmist is seeking the Lord, there's a joy in the Lord. There's a happiness and a blessedness for following God. And when the psalmist is caught in sin, he's miserable. Um, we, we, we just read as a family um, uh, from the Psalms this past week where there's a long list of the terrible things happening in the psalmist's life and it uh, culminates to say, and it's all because of my sinfulness that I'm living in this misery. So feelings can be helpful to some extent in helping us determine right from wrong. But our spiritual enemy, the devil, loves to take something that is true and twist it so that feelings can become the only standard by which we measure the truth from what is false, by which we measure what is right from what is wrong. If feelings are all we have when measuring the moral purity of an action or thought, we will be so easily deceived. And in some ways, we'll see in, in the morning sermons and weeks ahead that, that Satan appealed to the feelings of Adam and Eve. Doesn't the fruit look good? Doesn't it look good? Well, you know, Eve says, yeah, it does look. All the fruit of the garden looks good for, um, like it would be tasty. But, brothers and sisters, there are going to be times where something that looks good or feels good is actually evil. On the flip side, there will be times when what is right actually feels immediately like it was kind of a waste of time or not all that good of a course of action. Telling the truth to a coworker might feel like, oh, did I really need to do that? It was kind of a hard conversation and now this person is upset with me. That could be a good thing that we might immediately feel not so good about. So it could cause somebody to wonder if it was a good course of action or not, or, or giving up your Saturday to go and feed the poor. might not feel all that good um, when you're getting out of bed or, or to come and make sandwiches or when you're spending your valuable Saturday afternoon out on the streets of Stockton. It might, I think it feels great, but it might not always feel really all that great to be sacrificing some time to serve the Lord. And so we can see there that at times, what is evil might feel good for a moment, and what is good actually might feel not so great in the immediate um, aftermath of it. And so feelings are not of an ultimately reliable filter through which we discern what is right from wrong. A second option, and there will be four, and we'll sort of get quicker here as we go. Culture. The culture that we live in tells us what is good and what is bad. This is especially, or this is usually the metric that people are using when you might be having a conversation about ethics, and that person's ultimate answer to what is right from wrong is, it's wrong because it just is, or it's right because it just is. That person is actually appealing to culture, that culture has told me something is right or good, and so it just is right or good. Or culture has told me something is, is wrong or sinful, and so therefore it must just be wrong because our surrounding culture is maybe offended by a truth or an action. This is the case throughout all history. 
And in hindsight is 2020, isn't it? When evaluating some ways that cultures have gone way off track. For example, the student of Plato in ancient Greece would have said, pedophilia is just a part of how society works. It just is. In fact, doing some research on this matter, uh, Plato actually taught that pedophilia is better than the love between a man and a woman. That's disgusting to us. Similarly, people living on North Sentinel Island right now. It's an island near India. It's a, a, a tribe of people that live there that have no contact with the outside world. People living on that island, North Sentinel Island, would tell you any foreign person who sets foot on this island deserves to die. And so that happened to a Christian missionary in 2018 who went there with the gospel just to care for and, and share God's love with these people was immediately murdered upon setting foot on North Sentinel Island. We would look at that and say, well, that, that culture is, is wrong about that, that somebody would deserve to die simply by coming to visit them. In 1963, Governor George Wallace stood at the front of the University of Alabama, essentially proclaiming that black students should not be allowed to enroll in classes there, and that's just the way it is, according to the culture. That's just the way things should be. So in each case, there's a cultural approval of something that we regard as obviously sinful. And what makes those actions wrong is the word of God. What makes those actions wrong is not that our culture is now so enlightened and so we can look back on those other cultures and say they were wrong. We can't appeal to it with our own modern culture because then we're just getting caught up in the same mess. But we need a, a more solid grounding for our ethics. People might say, yeah, pedophilia, murder, segregation are wrong. Because they just are, because now our culture says that those things are wrong. But brothers and sisters, we need an unchanging standard. We have one in the word of God, and so thanks be to God. But we need an unchanging standard, and certainly culture changes at an increasingly rapid rate thanks to the internet and uh, technology. So culture is not going to be a good determiner of what is sinful. Thirdly, the law of the land. Some people would just appeal to the government that what is legal is good, what is illegal is bad. It's similar to the cultural argument, but it's a little bit different in some ways. Somebody would say if something is legal, it becomes morally permissible or good for me to do. That's often where a conversation about abortion will lead, where people would say because abortion was legal, then therefore it must be permitted. Um, and by that same logic, somebody would say that where polygamy and pedophilia and racist slavery were legal, then at the time they were morally good. You can see all, all the problems you get caught up in if that's your theology of ethics. So while we should pray that the laws of our nation and state and town uphold what is truly good by God's definition, we should be careful not to conflate the two, thinking that what is legal is morally sound or what is illegal is automatically morally bad. Certainly in North Korea, going to worship God, reading the Bible, having a Bible in North Korea is illegal. 
And yet we know that that is a good thing to, to read God's word, to share God's word. So the law of the land is not going to be the most helpful filter through which we can see what is good or bad. Lastly, what about the social sciences? Can psychology determine for us what is sinful, what is good? How does a therapist define misery? A couple years ago, I listened to a fascinating podcast on that exact question, how the definition in the world of the social sciences, psychology and sociology, has changed greatly, even from 75 years ago until today. And this is directly related to the question of defining what is sinful and what, it, what causes misery. The typical psychologist 75 years ago would have told somebody who would enter their office that to be well is to have a sense of purpose, and it is to nurture healthy relationships, and it is to have a positive sense of self-worth, and you have to work at those things sometimes and make changes in your life that sometimes are difficult changes, and sometimes medications can help with and so forth, but, but the, the striving towards wellness is, is, was a fuller view, we could say, about 75 years ago, and that has radically changed um, in part because of the pressure of pharmaceutical companies to define wellness differently, that wellness could almost be achieved by medication, by kind of dampening your senses, which is what so many uh, psychological drugs do, so that you don't have the highs or the lows anymore, and, and now that would almost be regarded as a sense of wellness or a lack of misery. So enjoying the kind of wellness, the, we would say the old-fashioned kind or the biblical kind, that, that takes work and that might include hard changes and recognizing that many people want to feel good and are unlikely to make the requisite changes for their wellness. The field of psychology has really turned more and more towards medicating people just to, to feel more emotionally stable. And certainly I'm not preaching against medications um, if somebody has bipolar disorder or some very serious psychological issue, medications can be very, very helpful in that regard. But we have to ask the question as Christians, can you be medicated out of misery? That's almost the assumption in the world of psychology and secular psychology today, that once you fix the brain chemicals, you'll be well. It's a, it's a different definition of misery and of sin and what we find in the Bible. So if someone is, is really struggling psychologically, by all means, see a therapist, see somebody who can, who can help you. But what we need to guard ourselves against as Christians is this thinking that a pill can solve this. A pill can make me well, can fix my sense of struggle, my, you know, my, my conscience. My, my bad feelings about the sins that I have done. And so we can be thankful today. God's word is the standard. God's word is the unchanging standard that tells us what is sinful and what is good. Romans 3 verse 20, the last verse of what we read in our scripture text. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law, through the word, through the Bible, comes knowledge of sin. And then we would ask, as a response to that proclamation of the truth, then who is under the law according to the Bible? Everyone. 
by works, no human being will be justified in his sight. And then we found earlier in the passage, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. I mean, talk about repetition, right? How many no's do we have or none's do we have in, in that passage? So with any of those other measures for morality, feelings, culture, the government, psychology, it is easy to count yourself among the righteous, right? If, if feelings are the measure for morality, all you need to do is feel good in order to be considered righteous. If the government is the measure for morality, all you need to do is don't break the law and you can convince yourself you're a righteous person. If, if psychology or um, culture are the standard by which we measure what is righteous, then all you need to do is do the right things that culture would regard as right. You could be considered righteous in your own mind. Or go to the therapist for every week for the rest of your life and kind of make some gains and feel okay because you're going there and, and you could convince yourself that you are among the righteous. But this will not be the case when we measure ourselves by the standard of God's word. That all are under the law and there is no one, not even one, who does what is good, who is good to the core. So, it's not just that those who are feeling down or are pushed aside by cultural trends or who break the law or are depressed who are miserable. No, the law of God applies to every person and every person is found wanting according to that standard. How do we know this? Well, that was in um, question and answer seven of what we read. Or sorry, a question and answer um, four. That what is the standard? To love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you do this? No. We might convince ourselves that we could feel good sometimes, and so um, if feelings are the standard of what is right and wrong, then we kind of might think that we're pretty good because we feel pretty good. Or we don't really break the, the law of the land all that often. Maybe we go speeding a little bit here and there. But, you know, we really are, are trying to be good citizens. And so we could convince ourselves that by that standard, we're, we're actually okay. But do you love God with all your heart? No. Even the born-again Christian knows that we still sin. Do you recognize that by nature you are selfish? That you are running away from God? And from your neighbor. So while that sounds like very bad news, and in a sense it is very bad news, we can receive it as part of the good news because it means that the same unchanging standard applies to everyone. That God is just. As we read um, in a different part of Romans 3, God is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. So, I'll give you an example of how the law reveals what is sinful from my own life. After I graduated college, one of the most popular movies that everybody was watching and talking about was Napoleon Dynamite. Maybe that dates me a little bit. It must have come out in about 2004 or 2005. It's a silly movie, um, and uh, it was really in the wheelhouse of the recent college grad at the time, and so a kind of a ridiculous film. And I hadn't seen it yet, and one of my friends found out that I hadn't seen it yet, and so he said, I'll just make you a copy of mine and I'll give you the copy. And so I 
was excited about that. I wanted to see the movie. I didn't really want to pay for, for it, and my friend had the movie, and so he gave me the, uh, the DVD. I popped the DVD in my DVD player, and one of the first frames of every movie that you watch reminds me it's the famed piracy warning, you know? Do not copy this. Do not watch a stolen version of this film. I kept watching Despite that very clear proclamation that was right there in front of me, I stole it. Did not pay for it. I stole the movie. And eventually, you know, whenever I would see the movie on that blank DVD, I always knew it was the one movie I had on a blank DVD with no picture or anything on the front of it. And I would always feel guilty about not paying for Napoleon. Maybe I should still just go and buy Napoleon Dynamite just to assuage my conscience, right? But God's word can have the same effect, warning you that what you are planning to do is sinful, warning you that what you have done was wrong. Even when it's right there in front of us, we know that we still have a natural tendency to do it anyway. When you hear the command, thou shalt not covet, do not covet, it will ruin your heart, it will ruin how you think about other people, how you think about your possessions. Do not covet. Will you just go on wishing for someone else's spouse or home or car or job or physical appearance? When you read in the Bible, honor your father and your mother, will you still speak negatively about them when you know, there's something that comes up between you and your siblings? Or, or will you honor them? When you read in the New Testament, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who humbled himself. That's God's law. That's God's standard for us. Is your attitude the same as that of Christ Jesus or will you just have a bad attitude when you feel like it? Brothers and sisters, don't be like me in just continuing to watch that, that DVD that was stolen. But respond, hopefully, spiritually to the law of God that is set before you. The Catechism teaches us that God's word faithfully, not only um, by reminding us that the Bible is the standard that we're held to, but also that we have a natural tendency to walk away from that standard, to, to hate even God and our neighbor. How did you feel when you read that out loud earlier? I have a natural tendency by my nature to hate God and my neighbor. I've heard some people criticize that Q&A of the catechism. They say it sounds way too dramatic. It sounds, do I really have a natural tendency to hate God and to hate the people that I run into? Brothers and sisters, compared to Romans 3, that's soft language, actually. Uh, look at what Romans 3 says. It, it is more powerful even than Q&A 3, or than, than, than Lord's Day 2 of the catechism. How does it describe every person who by our nature, our throats are open graves, they use, we use our tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruined and misery, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is God's description of our hearts without being born again. This is what we call the doctrine of total depravity. And it is uh, a biblical 
doctrine. The doctrine is not that we are always as bad as we possibly could be, but it teaches that without God's interventions, our desires are absolutely polluted. Our wills are are broken. Our desires pull us away from God and away from loving other people. I was teaching the catechism students that the catechism teaches that we're born in exile from God because of our original sin, and it is our nature to move further from God by sinning instead of it being in our nature to move towards him. That's what the doctrine of total depravity teaches. It's in our nature not to try to fix our problem or even to choose Christ in our own power, but it's in our nature to continue hating God and our neighbor, to move further away from God. All of creation is tainted by sin, especially the human will. That is the doctrine of total depravity. But you might say, well, that's not the way that I feel about God. That's not the way that I feel about other people. Again, we don't go just by how we're feeling about um, what is right and wrong. Again, we come back to the standard of the scriptures that tell us this is reality, but by the grace of God. The standard has to be the scriptures. And so, somebody will say, just as we start to close, I have this atheist neighbor who does pretty regularly what is morally good. I have an atheist coworker who is a pretty honest person, seems like a nice guy. You know, I hear often about uh, Mormon people who are, who are not Christians, and yet some of the, the finest citizens that you could meet, wonderful neighbors that people would have. And so they would say, well, doesn't that kind of ruin what this is saying in Romans 3 or the Reformed doctrine of total depravity, that, that they would really be inclined towards all evil and hate what is good? But brothers and sisters, when you encounter somebody who is not born again, who is doing what is good, thank God that he is bending their will despite their own desires to do something that is good. It's not as though those people actually have a lot of good in them, It's that God is using even that person, this is called the doctrine of common grace, to bend his will, to bend their will towards doing something that is good, even that would give God some glory, or even that would bless bless you. And so you would say, I have a non-believing neighbor who is a respectable citizen, brothers and sisters, we know from God's word it's by God's grace and not by virtue of their own purity that they would act in such a way. That it's God's common grace upon them that their will would be bent towards doing what is good in a moment. So in closing, I want to encourage you to be thankful for the clarity of God's law in revealing what is sin. Can we be thankful for that tonight? That God's law is clear. God's word is clear. It tells us the truth about what is good and what is evil. Just as the Bible is clear in teaching us about sin, so it is also clear in pointing us to the remedy for sin, the solution. Just as the measure for ethics is not ultimately our feelings, our culture, our government, or a psychologist, so the solution to our moral failings is not found in our feelings, our culture, our government, or a psychologist. The problem is revealed by the word of God. The solution is revealed by the word of God. The solution, of course, being Christ, who is himself the way and the truth and the life. And that by him, 
we come to the Father. That by him, our sins are forgiven. So let's be thankful tonight, not only that God's word is so clear in pointing out what is sinful, but that God's word is so clear and so resounding in telling us about the remedy. That is Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you, we bless you that you have told us the truth about ourselves and the world that we live in. Lord, we, we thank you for, for how you mold us and shape us and how you teach us. And we pray that we would, as your people, desire to know what is true, that we would have uh, a passion, a zeal to know your word so that by it we could measure our, our own lives, that by it we could measure what is good or what is evil in our culture that we would hold fast, hold tightly to the word of truth. God, we pray that we would do so not only to discern what is sinful, but that as we hold tightly to your word, we would see time and again not only what is good, but where our salvation comes from. That is you. Oh God, we pray that we would know your word and that we would live by it in Jesus' name. Amen.